from WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm Ben Shockman. Thank you for joining us here in the parking lot of CarMax. We're starting this week's show on a used car lot. Ben, why are we on a used car lot? Uh, to talk about housing, obviously. Makes perfect sense. This entire show is about housing, from the people who can't find any, to the people trying to help those falling through the cracks of the housing market. And these cars are a perfect metaphor for that. You know, they actually are. Thanks to supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic, the supply of new cars was lower than normal. And demand went up during the pandemic because people had spare money from savings on eating out and vacations not taken, and they wanted to buy more stuff. Exactly. So a lot of people who wanted to buy new cars found out there would be a really long waiting list. And maybe they didn't want to wait for a shiny new car, so they started looking at the used market, even though they have money for a brand new car, and that's what they actually wanted. So that's pushing up demand in a market with limited supply, which, if I vaguely remember my college econ classes, that's going to drive up prices. Yeah, I looked this up before we came out here, and the average price of a used car has gone up 50% since the summer of 2020, an increase of more than $10,000 on average. Okay, this sounds suspiciously like the filtering concept we talked about on another episode of the newsroom. If you recall, that was the cruel musical chairs concept. Yes. I love talking about cruel musical chairs. <laughs> You're a true housing nerd, and that's a little unnerving. Okay, so lay it out for us. What is the cruel musical chairs concept? Okay, so let's look at this used car as an example. It's a 2019 Honda Civic EX, and the price on it is $27,998. So we looked this up online, and the year before this car came out, they were talking about it and said the average price would be around $23,000, right? Yeah, on the lot, brand new, $23,000. This one has 52,000 miles, and it's $5,000 more. The price has gone up that much because the market has increased so much for used cars. And that's because rich people who can afford new cars can't find them. So they're looking for nice used cars in the used car market. Okay, but why is this 2019 Honda Civic so expensive? Well, who was the original market for these newer, nicer used cars that the rich are now taking advantage of? Uh, I guess the upper middle class? Exactly. And now they can't find a car in their previous price range that's nearly as nice. They need to look for an older used car, maybe one with more miles or fewer features. And that means the middle class who could previously afford that kind of car now can't afford it. And they're starting to look at cheaper and cheaper options. And used car lots can't supply them, so they're trying to buy them back from people they just sold them to. That happened to me last summer. My dealership wanted to buy my car back just a year after they sold it to me. Okay, so we looked at some other car lots too, and we noticed there's actually shortages of higher-end cars, like Jaguars, upper-end Audis, BMW, 5 Series, stuff like that. So now people are going down in the market to mid-range cars, like this 2019 Honda Civic, but because there are more people trying to buy this car, the entire market is now shifting into higher prices. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's because of that constricted supply within the top of the market. While the rich can just decide to buy a different car, people at the low end of the market may just get priced out entirely. Then they'll have to catch a ride, or walk, or worse, take a bicycle. Hey, don't come for my bikes. I'm stealing the newsroom again for an entire cycling episode. Just you watch. Okay, okay, no hate on bikes, I promise. But, but tell me, what does this look like in the housing market? Well, it's the same idea. Right now, there's not enough supply for the demand of housing in Wilmington, and really in all cities in North Carolina. Not enough new houses for people to buy, not enough new apartments for people to rent. And since the rich typically want new stuff, and there's not enough new stuff available, they're filtering into other segments of the market. So, like older apartment buildings? Exactly. They're moving into stuff that was built in the early aughts or even in the 1990s. And wait, 
Let me guess, that drives up rent because of demand and pushes people who usually live in those apartments into even older housing. Exactly. And down and down it goes until you're looking at people paying higher rent even for substandard housing. We're also seeing a lot of flipping going on. Super old houses in the downtown area getting a new coat of paint and selling for 20k over asking price, which the asking price is already double what it sold for last. That's something we've heard about dozens of times in the past year or so. But I have heard that the housing market is cooling off a bit now, especially because the Fed raised interest rates. That hasn't necessarily translated to a cooled rental market, though. Because if people who can afford to buy a house are feeling priced out of buying because of increased rates, they might just decide to rent for a bit until it cools off again. And that means those with a bit of wealth in the form of a down payment are staying in rentals, choking out that supply. And rents are continuing to go up by 2% each month this summer. The average rental in New Hanover County now costs $1,469. I can tell you firsthand, it is insane. But it's not like the landlords are charging their tenants an extra 2% each month. It comes in a big jump when your lease is up. Exactly. And that's why it's unclear just how long these prices will continue to rise. Given that we're expecting to have a deficit of 10,000 units of housing in the county by 2030, I don't see those price increases ending anytime soon. Oh, great. Well, that's a depressing bit of context, Kelly Kinoyer. So I'm going to leave the rest of the show to you. But tell me before I leave, what can we expect from this episode? Well, first, we'll visit with a person who's been pushed out of the housing market. And we'll take a tour of a housing success story and chat with social workers and community activists who deal with the gritty realities of a tight housing market every day. Ah, gritty realities. But it does sound like a good show. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Ben. All right, now we're back in the studio. I wanted to say that there are a lot of ways that people can end up falling out the bottom of the housing market. The most vulnerable to that are those who can't really fend for themselves. The severely mentally ill, the disabled, the elderly. These folks often become chronically homeless, and we'll hear more about them later. But there's a lot of things that can cause people to fall through the cracks. Losing your job, a sudden medical bill, or a hurricane damaging your apartment and displacing you. Any of these issues, or a combination of them, can displace someone who's stably housed and put them on the streets. I want to introduce you listeners to one of your homeless neighbors. You won't see her on the street, though she's listed as homeless in population counts. I met her at a hotel near UNCW, where she's been living for the past two years. I'm Heather Wilson. I've lived here pretty much my whole life. Um, always been here, worked here. Um, we did live out in Rocky Point for a little while. Florence came through. Um, that kind of messed a lot of stuff up. We were living in a trailer. Um, the trailer wasn't the best after Florence, nor were any of the trailers in the trailer park. Um, they didn't really want to fix up anything. Um, I was pregnant with her at the time also afterwards, so it just went downhill. Heather and I talked in the hotel's side garden while her daughter, McKenna, ran around playing with toys and stealing peanut M&Ms from her mother. Heather's luck really went sideways with Hurricane Florence in 2018. We ended up getting evicted from out there just because we couldn't pay the rent. I couldn't afford it. Um, and now that's kind of followed me everywhere. We moved in with his, um, her father, his parents, or his mom, and we stayed there for a while. It became very toxic for my children and me, so I had to remove myself from the situation. His mom's boyfriend wasn't the best about it and kind of took eviction papers out on us as well. So that's really, it's really screwed me. I don't, I've been to Wilmington Housing, I have been to Good Shepherd, I have been to anywhere and everywhere you can think of and nobody can help me. So those evictions have just followed you everywhere? Yep. 
and now I'm literally living in a hotel with my children because I don't have anywhere else to go. Nobody will rent to me anywhere. Um, we've been approved for an apartment in Wilmington. This has been a year now. We haven't heard from them. We can't get a hold of them. They have my money. I have two kids that would love a home and this is what I've had to do. You know, it, it really sucks. I don't know what else I'm supposed to do at this point. It sucks because I work full time. And I think a lot of my issue is because I work. <laughs> because I work, they're like, oh, she doesn't really need that much help. And now that I live in a hotel, they're like, oh, well, you found housing. How is that housing? Like, you, you can't tell me that that's okay for two kids, you know? Yeah. I wish we'd have never got to the point of the first eviction, but that's something that I can't take back and I can't change. You know, when we went to court, it was a mutual, you know, y'all just leave and yada, 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 that's it. I never knew that it had such an impact or I would have never let it get to that point. And now I'm stuck because it's there and everybody sees it when they run your history and it's like that's the first thing they're like nope you have an eviction you're just done and I understand but like I said people will have to get another chance some eventually somehow that's well, all I'm asking it's just some chance to to make this right for them do you feel like it's harder because there's such a crazy housing crisis there's so much demand for housing right now what, what do you think that does for your chances it makes it almost impossible. I think in the fact that I work also puts a damper on it because they look at me as well. They both have full-time jobs. You know, they have more than enough to be able to provide for what they need. But yes, we don't have what everybody else has. We don't have a house to go home to at night. We don't have our bedrooms. They don't have their rooms. And this is now how my three-year-old looks as home, as this is her home. And for me, that's not okay. So. So she's been here for most of her life. Yep. She has, sad to say. She has, and she's done very well with it. I think at her age, I've been grateful because of you know her age, but I know that eventually she's gonna start realizing it, and I want her to have normalcy. You know, I want normalcy, and I want her to have normalcy, you know? I want her to have her own room. She's three years old, and she's never had her own room, you know? That's and it's not for lack of trying. Heather says she works almost full-time, about 36 hours a week, plus a side hustle with Uber Eats. Her partner works 20 hours a week, too, with a similar delivery gig on the side. And even though they work so hard to provide, they still can't access housing. They can afford to pay rent, but their prior evictions have largely shut them out of the housing market. Landlords with a plethora of tenants applying will turn away anyone with a red flag. I don't know what else to do. I'm trying to afford a hotel every single day. Had a little bit of help here and there, but it still adds up. Normal bills come into play, you know. I just want to, if I can afford a hotel, I can afford to pay rent. <laughs> like, this place is way more expensive than my rent would ever be. So I just, I just need, I need somebody to give us a chance. If not for me, at least for my kids, so they can have a normal life. I have a 13-year-old that's about to be 14. She's at a very, very tough age. She chooses to be with grandma more so because she wants that normalcy. And my ultimate goal is for her to be happy. So that's what I allow her to do because I want her to be happy. I don't want her to live like this. You know, when I was told that my only choice was to take my children to the shelter, that, that killed me because I don't see that that's acceptable. You know, they say no child left behind in the school and all this and that. Well, I think it's crap because I have two children and 
no nobody is trying to reach out and i mean with all these organizations it blows my mind that there's no one that can help the last point in time count for pender brunswick and new hanover county found 600 people struggling with homelessness but that's likely an undercount those who are living with family in overcrowded conditions don't get counted nor do those living in hotels like heather We also know 50 percent of renters are housing burdened in New Hanover County, so even more people are at risk of tipping over the edge, like Heather did after Hurricane Florence. Others have left the community entirely. Another family I talked to living in a hotel ended up leaving the region before we could schedule an interview. They're now living in a hotel in the Charlotte area. These struggles with homelessness can be frustrating and can pull families apart. Heather says her eldest daughter doesn't stay with her in the hotel. She stays with her grandma instead. I allow her to do what makes her happy. If you want to stay with grandma and that makes you happy and you see us here and there, so be it. I want her to be happy because she's at the age where she understands. That's why when I was told to go to the shelter, I'm like, how do you take a 13-year-old to the shelter? How do you explain that to them? She struggled in school a lot because I don't know if some people caught on to that we were homeless, (laughs) but I know there were some comments made to her at school Um, And then she started, she missed a lot of school because she didn't want to go because people were teasing her. She felt a certain way about going to school and not having a home. So it's gotten better, but I'm afraid that it's going to happen again. And I don't want that for her. How does it make you feel for your daughter to want to stay with her grandma instead of staying here with you? It hurts. It makes me upset, but at the end, I know that she she wants the normalcy. She wants her room. You know, she has a room at grandma's house. You know, she can be on the computer. She can go outside and jump on the trampoline. She can ride her bike around the neighborhood. She wants that normalcy. And I want her to be happy. And I don't want her to resent me or her father. So that's what makes her happy. You know, I talk to her every day. You know, I'm going to go pick her up later and we're going to hang out. You know, it's just, it's a sh- situation. I'm sorry. It really is. Because I'm torn between keeping them together or letting her be happy because she is at such a critical stage and age of her life. So I don't know. It does suck, but I want her to be happy. It's almost a cliche, but it's true. It's really expensive to be poor. For Heather, just paying for the hotel is like running on a treadmill. So you pay nightly? Yeah. What's the nightly rate usually? Um, it can anywhere, it's usually one, like over 100. So anywhere 120, 140, somewhere like that. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot of money. I mean, that means you're probably spending like three grand. Yes. I mean, I mean, my employer, she's always, she's like, you know, that's crazy that you're paying a hotel bill and nobody wants to give you a place to rent. And yeah, I know evictions hold a lot. I know they do. But at the same time, people have got to be willing to give other people a chance. The average cost of a rental apartment in New Hanover County is just over $1,400, half what Heather pays monthly. They fight and scrounge to keep the roof over their heads as a family when they'd be living comfortably on the same salary elsewhere. And Heather just wants that for her daughters. People can say, oh, I get what you're going through. I can't imagine. You can't because nobody knows how it feels or what it's like to have everything ripped away from you. Literally now in a storage building and you're trying to keep everything together because if it wasn't for those children, I would have lost it a long time ago and said, screw it, threw my hands up, I'm done. 
but for them I'm not I can't do that I won't <laughs> so I just keep on doing it I keep on going to work every day keep on paying the hotel bill because I don't know what else to do at this point so I know that there's not enough resources in this community for people who don't have housing already um, and there's not enough housing for the people who are already in the market it's just mm -hmm. such a tight market is. is there something that you want to see from your local government to, to address this issue make the housing situation better needs to be cheaper, more affordable. I mean, who can afford 1450 on a two bedroom house? That's absurd, you know, that it doesn't make sense. You know, I've been on the internet, I've looked at different places. We've even considered picking up and moving. But you know, at this point, what do you do when you don't have anything? You know, if we go somewhere else, how do you start over with nothing? Why can't it not be affordable here? Why can people not afford to live? Because I know we're not the only ones. We're, there's other people struggling. Maybe not as in our bad of a situation as we are in, but there's other people that they don't know how they're going to do it over and over, day in and day out, because it's ridiculous. I mean, I've seen over two grand for houses for rent. And, you know, at this, play, at this point, I'm like, sometimes I wish I didn't work. Then maybe I would get a little bit more help. But I can't do that. I go to work every day because that's my savior. That's my that's my my safe haven, I guess you would say, from everything that goes on in my crazy life. And also, if you stopped working now, the bottom would fall out, and then you'd be still on a waiting list, but you actually wouldn't be able to afford the hotel. Exactly. So I'm left with I just keep doing. We keep doing it every day until something comes through. That's all I know. My employer, my office manager, she just tells me every day, it's gonna come, it's gonna come, it's gonna come. And I just, I wish that day it was tomorrow. <laughs> I really do, I really do. You know, it's, we're still paying car insurance. We both have cars that have to be insured to drive back and forth to work. So it's like, we still have a lot of the normalcy that everybody else does, but we don't have a home to go to home to. We don't have a safe, I wouldn't say not a safe place to lay your head because it is safe here, that's why I'm here. But it's not the same, you know? It's not the same comfort at knowing that you're in your own home with your kids, safe and sound. You know, you never know what's gonna come in here, who's gonna be next to you, who's gonna raise hell. <laughs> you know, it's, it sucks, it really does. Are there things that McKenna likes about it? You kind of mentioned that earlier. Oh, she, she's made friends with everybody. She loves it. I think just the people here have been so awesome. I couldn't thank them more because they do know our situation and they've been very helpful. Shalinda, the manager, has been oh, more than helpful to me. And I don't know what I would have done if it wouldn't have been for her, because I don't know where I would have went. And she knows our situation, and she loves that child. She, I think she, she knows how hard it is, and she tries to make it as, as good for her as possible. And they have done that to the janitor, to the lady that mops the floor, to the one that takes out the trash. You know, a lot of them know our situation. So when they see us, hey guys, how are you? They talk to her, they make friends with her, you know. That does make it better for me because then I know that she feels like she's safe. You at least have some community. I do, I do, I have some kind of support, you know. Sorry. No, that's, that's fine, I'm so sorry. I mean, it's, you're really strong to be going through this, honestly. Because um, it's, it's so hard. It is. I mean, I've, there's been point times when I'm just like, I can't do it. You know, some people would have given up their children, you know, to someone better that could have taken care of them. And but I feel like they they deserve to be with me, and I deserve a chance to do it better. And that's all I want.
I just want to make it better for them and for me. After our interview, Heather dried her tears and took her three-year-old McKenna upstairs. Friday's her day off, and she planned to meet up with her eldest daughter later in the day. But living in a hotel like this, that family is always living on the edge. Still, Wilson is more stably housed than a lot of folks in the community. Coming up next, we'll hear from three advocates and professionals who work closely with the most at-risk populations in the Cape Fear region. Then we'll look at a permanent supportive housing project in Wilmington that aims to help people who fall through the cracks. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm your guest host, Kelly Knoyer. On this week's show, we're talking all about the affordable housing crisis, not just as a numbers problem or an economic problem, but as a humanitarian crisis. That's why I brought in a panel of experts who deal with these struggles firsthand. These are social workers and advocates who serve those who are most likely to fall through the cracks of society, the severely mentally ill, the disabled, and the homeless. They work long hours to support clients who survive on disability or on Medicaid, who struggle to find and maintain safe and stable housing. These advocates know firsthand how difficult it is to place anyone with limited financial ability in housing in today's hot housing market. And what a lot of them want to see for their clients is straightforward, permanent supportive housing. The cost of that kind of housing is capped at about 30% of a person's income and comes with free, built-in social services to help them kick their addictions, become stably medicated, reconnect with family, or just live happy and fulfilling lives. All right, let's get to the panel. Thank you all for joining us. Can you introduce yourselves for me? I'm Hilary Falk Vaughn. I'm a psychologist and the clinical director at Physician Alliance for Mental Health and co-owner of Embrace Wellness Group here in Wilmington. And I am Michelle Bennett, housing advocate. I'm Karen Garcia, LCSWA, LCASA, and ACT team lead at Physician Alliance for Mental Health. ACT is A-C-T. Yes. Perfect. Uh, so that means you're a licensed social worker? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So for Physicians Alliance for Mental Health, what is the population you primarily work with? We primarily treat individuals um, with severe and persistent mental illness, meaning that um, individuals likely have a diagnosis of a primary psychotic disorder, like schizophrenia. That's something that people um, know and understand. Um, also bipolar disorder um, with, with psychotic features, major depressive disorder with psychotic features, meaning their illness gets so significant that they might see things that aren't real, hear things that aren't real, and need help navigating their world because of some of those challenges. Um, we also... Um, and treat folks with less severe diagnoses, but our area of expertise is, in, is with mm-hmm. the severe and persistent mentally ill. So these are folks who are very vulnerable. Correct. Yes. Um, very easily extorted. Our folks are more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators of crime, um, which is something that we do a lot to try to educate the community on. Um, we also, in our agency, have dedicated ourselves to serving the low-income and indigent. So I would probably say, without exact numbers, about 95% of the individuals we serve either have Medicaid, Medicaid and Medicare, or have no insurance at all. Um, We are one of the um, few providers in town that have a contract to serve individuals with no insurance. Mm -hmm. And it's because their illness is so severe that they need these services to be able to survive and thrive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So 
since it's such a vulnerable population, mm-hmm. you end up dealing with landlords who have housing that's very inexpensive. Correct. Um, are there what are some of the problems that come up with that? And are there other landlords in that same bracket who are less exploitative that you've run into? Speaking to the individuals that we work with being more likely to be victim of crimes, speaking about um, Colonial Arms specifically, we've worked with two individuals who in the last year have been assaulted living there. In terms of the the landlords that we work with, I think it's really difficult right now with the housing crisis in Wilmington and how that's affected our our specific population. Um, I've been doing this since 2019 and housing has only gotten worse. And, you know, th- there are landlords that we do work well with, um, but the, the housing is more expensive. Um, Overall, there's competition now with the working class for the housing that we can provide our individuals to. So it's very hard to come by. Landlords are way more selective than than they used to be. And this just kind of speaks to the housing crisis in Wilmington um, because our agency works from a housing first model. So that means that Despite an individual's uh, severe and persistent mental illness, we believe that if they have a roof over their head, that they're able to accomplish the other goals that they have. And so despite whatever they might be dealing with, whether that be, you know, extreme psychosis or substance use, we still move from that housing first model to help them find safe, affordable and permanent housing, which does not exist in Wilmington right now, to be able to be as successful as possible. And so a lot of our individuals will attempt to temporarily use uh, a boarding house such as Colonial Arms uh, for short term stability because it is better than living on the streets. It is They believe it is safer than living on the streets. I wanted to get to the point that you made about folks competing with the working class. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say a little bit more about when that started being an issue and what that looks like on the ground. Um, I first started seeing housing be a huge issue um, in Wilmington for the SBMI population that I had not seen before. And granted, I was newer to this role after Hurricane Florence. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at that point, I was working with a different agency, but there were several individuals that I worked with that had nowhere to go. I would walk into their homes and water would be up to their mattresses and their needs were not being met for months at a time because our, our entire community was in crisis. And um, some people got left behind. You know, with the housing, with Wilmington having the highest percentage of inbound moves in the last year, um, you know, housing is a crisis right now everywhere. But um, just how that specifically impacts Wilmington and how, um, you know, we have such a high percentage of our high, our poverty rate is very high compared to um, the national poverty rate and um and even the state. And so um, there really is no middle class here in my perception. And so now what we're seeing is that the individuals who provide services here, working at restaurants or um, grocery stores, they can't afford to live here anymore. And I'm seeing that crisis amongst a lot of my friends that I have. You know, my I bought a house at the perfect time, but it's already increased in $100,000 in value, and I bought it two years ago. Wow. Um, and so even looking on Zillow and seeing how, um, how much, ho- I mean, houses have almost doubled in the past uh, three years. So this is an issue that, you know, the individuals that we work with, I think, have always faced, but now it's 
it, it's almost new to the people who've who've grown up here and provided mm-hmm. services here. And so that competition is amongst them and nobody is, is getting housing. Yeah, um, that's 100 percent right. What you said about there being no middle class. CFC mm-hmm. did an analysis of that and they call it the tale of two economies mm-hmm. because there's basically this big bump of mm-hmm. upper income folks and then a huge bump right around minimum wage. And there's hardly anybody making the median. Absolutely. So 100% true. I think another phenomenon that adds on to that, I, I absolutely agree with Karen, that we saw this this huge shift in those two um, right after Florence. But you also think, well, some people coming from New York, even from Raleigh or Charlotte, might not describe Wilmington as urban. If you think about our area, we are the more urban area in southeastern North Carolina. If you look at Myrtle Beach to the south, Jacksonville's not anywhere close close to our size, um, and then the, with the next closest being Raleigh or, or Durham, we see a lot of folks coming from all of these outlying areas mm-hmm. to Wilmington saying Wilmington has the greatest resources. We hear that from our payer sources. We hear mm-hmm. that from other providers. Anywhere there where it's so rural that a landlord that has a house is rare, and if they have one, there's only one or two in that town. So they come to Wilmington. So not only do we have the folks that we have mm-hmm. here, we have people coming in here in droves saying there's more resources here. We actually have homeless shelters where you don't see homeless shelters in any, in those mm-hmm. areas until you get to some of those larger places. Mm-hmm. But I understand that the shelters now are basically full, they right? Are. So mm-hmm. when did that happen? When did we overcome the abilities of the resources that are available in, in Wilmington? Well, COVID has definitely impacted shelter use and openings at shelters. There's still a lot of cognition about spacing and how many folks they can serve. Um, You know, we have a couple of different kinds of shelters here, but COVID has been, I think, the most significant impact of not being able to have enough resources in terms of emergency shelters. Prior to COVID, um, Mm -hmm. we could have somebody who was a part of a um, housing support program where they had some financial assistance to be able to meet some of their housing needs. And they could stay in a hotel for a few days, maybe a week, and waiting for a shelter bed to be available until they could get into their subsidized housing. Or somebody that was coming in from the hospital, they could stay in a hotel for a couple of days until they can get into a a shelter bed. I would probably say since COVID started, we saw that go from staying in there a couple of days to staying in there a week and now we're lucky if we get one within a month if we mm-hmm. asked if we can and, and it's mm-hmm. not like you can just put your name on a list and say hey I'm next it's it's constantly going and trying and showing up and seeing if there's a bed available so it's an active process there's two really big things that I want to be heard in all of this and it's how race and disabilities play a factor in the homeless uh, community here in Wilmington. I don't have the actual data right now but I know at one point 50% of that population was African American while I think it was 18% of African Americans lived in the Wilmington community so it's incredibly disproportionate as well as there's a pretty stark number of individuals who are homeless who have disabilities as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer, and my guests are social worker Karen Garcia, psychologist Hilary Falk-Vaughn, and housing advocate Michelle Bennett. I've heard several cases of working people who have working class or middle class jobs struggling to attain housing and either moving out of the community or staying in hotels out of desperation. Some have even told me they've considered not working at all because it might make them more qualified for services. Is that true? First of all, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to know that you can that you can work 
and still not be able to meet your basic needs. That is, that to me is not what America was built to be. Um, that's probably a whole other discussion as well. Um, but even, I, I think there have been many people that have thought if I stop working, maybe I would qualify for more resources. But these days, even if you look at an individual who does not have functional deficits related to a disability that would not qualify for a subsidy that is related to that, if you just look at Section 8 alone, that that has been closed forever. And when was mm-hmm. the last time they opened up? Well, Do you remember? It briefly <laughs> opened again, and we've had some emergency mm-hmm. housing vouchers. The problem is there were a host of emergency housing vouchers that were issued, but there was no um, housing that would take them because mm-hmm. when the emergency housing vouchers were first issued, they were working on a fair market rent value that was two years old. So it was outdated by two years. Mm-hmm. They have since adjusted that um, fair market rent amount. However, it wasn't retroactive to all the people who had already received a housing voucher. So, mm-hmm. you know, why would you as a, a property manager or a landlord say, okay, sure, I'll rent this to you for $858 when I could get twice that. And, you know, it's not someone who qualifies, who a lot of people acknowledge that carries a, a certain reputation with it that, you know, some landlords and property managers aren't interested in. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a stigma for Section 8 housing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, anything else you want to say broadly on the situation with affordable housing in Wilmington? Oh, I was just going to say that, I mean, the AMI is at something like 68,000. So when mm-hmm. you're talking about, you know, CNAs, CMAs, wait staff, the service industry as a whole, um, you know, entry-level firefighters, entry-level law enforcement. I mean, you know, teachers. you're, yeah, teachers, mm-hmm. thank you. That's a good one. Um, you know, not not just folks who qualify for mm-hmm. Section 8 housing, not just folks who have disabilities, not, you know, historically marginalized communities. We're talking about a whole host of people that don't have access to affordable housing as it is. Mm-hmm. And another piece that I want to mention with this is, you know, um, we work with clients who have severe um, and persistent mental illness. With that, I mean, a lot of individuals we work with are on disability. And unfortunately, we'll meet with somebody who, who has a pretty severe disability, and, and there's nothing that is more upsetting to meet with them, to support them in housing, and not have options for them. And when I meet with these individuals, one of the first things that I say is, I want to be completely transparent and letting you know all of this. Here are immediate options. Here are long-term options we can have, but it can take months to get movement. And so oftentimes what our agency is looking at is supporting an individual in obtaining a tent and finding a safe place to sleep. And then we talk about jails. We talk about hospitals and how people that we support are potentially in and out of both. Um, um, Their medications are constantly changing when they're institutionalized in both. Um, And so they are not get able to have access to even get better. I know a lot of your clients end up living in terrible living conditions in places like Colonial Arms, the boarding house that recently was marked for demolition or repair. They end up living with bed bugs or failing water systems in truly inhumane conditions because they're renting from a landlord who refuses to fix those kinds of problems. And now those very residents are having to move out with no clear sense of what shelter they can move into. And For Colonial Arms, Physicians Alliance helped them move out this week, right? You know, it's just folks who are being victimized repeatedly. First, they Mm -hmm. are experiencing homelessness. So then they go into, I will loosely use the word shelter, and they are in such a situation that, you know, most people would not live in. 
but it is some sort of shelter to them. And so then you're talking about displacing them. You're talking about having someone go through their belongings. You're talking about someone else saying to them, no, I'm sorry, you can't take any of your personal effects mm-hmm. with you. So it's just one, you know, one trauma after the other. And those things compound. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I, I can't, I, I guess I can imagine it, but the mindset of someone who would live in those conditions and, and think that they couldn't find something better, don't deserve something better, um, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that looks like, because certainly there are, we have definitely served clients who have had that mindset as well, mm-hmm. you know, that this is what they've earned or what they're worth or mm-hmm. being in being in that situation is is part of what they get. I have, um, you know, a, a ton of stories on this, um, but even with the individuals I was with the other day in the middle of all of this, um, he's, he, one of them stopped at one point and asked me, do you think people in the community care? Do you think they have our back? That's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to that point. He, mm-hmm. he asked, does the community care? Do you feel like the community cares about your clients? It's a really, really, really great question. Do I think people care about other human beings? I do. I do believe we see that in this community. Um, I think there is still so much stigma around the individuals that we serve that people are scared of the individuals we treat. They don't understand. They believe that there's choice behind what they do. Um, If they are behaviorally acting out in public because they are actively psychotic, because of lack of knowledge, the general public in the community believe that they are choosing to act this way or maybe um, on significant drugs and that if they made different choices, then their life would be different or better. I believe people care and want to care, but I don't think they know how to care for this Mm -hmm. population because there's not enough known about it. Mm -hmm. And a few weeks ago, um, just considering the clients that we serve and the level of service, I mean, we basically have the highest level of service in the community for these individuals. And um, one of the things that, you know, I, I think about what it's like to to have their experience. I mean, one day for uh, for a training in our room, we all listen to voices. And so, you know, when you hear voices that are telling you to kill yourself or you um, or, you know, you feel like people that you love are want to kill you or they are literally out to hurt you. And, and that is your experience. I was looking at the list of our clients and I was thinking to myself, how do these people function so well? Because I could not. Mm. That's it's a very tortured life for a lot of them, um, both internally and externally tortured. Um, and this illness, especially psychotic disorders, is so it's it, it's exacerbated by or the the misperception of this population is exacerbated by the media, um, by um, folks who are very loud about some of the individuals who have had psychotic disorders and committed some pretty horrific crimes. We would never pretend to that that those haven't existed. But if you if the community understood that one percent of the population experiences a psychotic disorder in the entire world and and if you think about the number of folks with a psychotic disorder who have committed severe crimes and the number of people who don't have psychotic disorders that have committed severe crimes, those numbers don't match up to be scared of this population. Okay. This has been such an illuminating conversation about the populations you serve. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank, thank you for you. being here. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you. for And thanks for caring. All right. That was social worker Karen Garcia and psychologist Hillary Falk Vaughn from Physicians Alliance for Mental Health, along with community advocate Michelle Bennett. 
Coming up next, we'll take a tour of a permanent supportive housing project in Wilmington and hear about another project that may come to the community soon. Stay with us. We're back. It's the newsroom from WHQR, and I'm your guest host, Kelly Knoyer. Lakeside Reserve is a peaceful community right next to Greenfield Lake, with 40 residents who adore the lakeside trails and the peace and tranquility of the nearby Memorial Butterfly Garden. Liz Carbone, who's Good Shepherd Center's community coordinator, says people often stop by to ask whether they can place their grandparents there. They assume it's a retirement home. But it's actually permanent supportive housing that became available five years ago. So we, we take a lot of pride in not only having it, the structure itself being really nice, but taking really good care of the property and just being good neighbors and setting a model, not just for our community, but for the state and, and the region of what affordable housing not only can look like, but really what it should look like. It's a series of blue buildings with steel roofs and white rocking chairs on their disability accessible porches. While some of the residents who moved in five years ago have left, many have stayed the entire time. It's a model of affordable housing that's considered the gold standard for helping the chronically homeless stabilize and live healthy and fulfilled lives. A big part of that is a commitment to work with these residents for the rest of their lives to help achieve their goals. Carbone points out the case manager's office inside the shared hallway space. It's right across from a shared TV room for residents who want to watch movies or shows together. Meg's our full-time case manager. She's dedicated solely to this property, uh, which is, again, that, that really critical supportive services piece where she's that person where, you know, you've gone to the doctor and maybe you needed somebody to sit with you because they were going to do a procedure. Not only can she take you and sit with you and bring you home, but she can then follow up in a couple days and say, hey, did you go to CVS and get that medication? Those services are provided at no extra charge for all residents. And the individual resident and their needs determine how often they speak with Meg. Some talk with her daily or more than daily, and others once every week or every few weeks just to check in. Residents pay just 30% of their income, whatever it is. For most in this facility, which is primarily aimed at the chronically ill and disabled, that's just $250 or so cut out of their small disability paycheck each month. It costs Good Shepherd Center about $200,000 a year to run Lakeside Reserve, but Carbone says housing the chronically homeless is actually a cost-saving for the community. So again, it's a very small subset of the overall homeless population, both nationally and and in Wilmington, Um, but they are typically the highest users of services. Those are the folks you're going to see in the emergency room all the time, uh, entering day or night shelter year after year, simply because there is no other housing option for them, even if they desperately want to be housed There is nowhere that they can afford when you have $798 in disability benefits. Like that's just, it's literally an an impossible equation. So the need, you know, we estimate anywhere from 100 to 120 units total on top of what already exists in our community. During the tour, we popped in with one resident to see her apartment. We won't share her name for her privacy. It's 660 square feet, with modern appliances, a spacious kitchen designed to accommodate wheelchair users, and coastal decor that the resident found herself. She also has a dozen or so plants in the bright windowsill, which faces towards the lake. She's had one of them for the entire five years she's lived at Lakeside Reserve, 
Good Shepherd gave each resident one as a welcome gift when they moved in. It's not really a house until you have a house plant. And so everybody had their own little like pothos plant. And I didn't realize that that was hers uh, when, when she was showing off that huge plant and the big, you know, drum. So uh, that was really special to see that, you know, five years later, she still has her, her plant. It's growing and, and flourishing. So The resident said she adored her apartment and never wants to move out. It's hard to express how happy she seemed living there and the pride she took in her apartment. Everything was neat and tidy, lovingly decorated with kitten calendars and surfs up signs. She said she plans to adopt a kitten of her own, too. Yeah, and that's, again, like it's, it's really special to see folks connected um, not only to their unit, but when we were talking about the potential of future units to see how excited she was that, you know, another project like this would be coming to the community. It's, it's one thing for us to talk about it and for us to show pictures on a board or what have you, or to, to email someone some photos or see it online, but to physically come here and visit, um, to see how peaceful it is on the lake, you know, talk to the tenants and, and see their experience. You know, that, that's how you really understand hey, I really wouldn't mind having this in my neighborhood or or down the street from my my child's school, you know. For the folks at Good Shepherd Center, it's not just about sheltering these folks. It's about giving them a better life than they imagined was possible for themselves. Giving them the opportunity to find peace, health, and happiness after years, even decades, of living desperate lives in the streets. Executive Director Katrina Knight says that's why the Butterfly Garden is so important at Lakeside and why they'd want to put in similar amenities at any new development. You've got to allow for green space. You've got to allow for, I want to say, the same kind of experience that other residents would want to enjoy. But but in a way, it needs to be more and better and more special because, um, you know, you, you are serving folks with special needs. So they have all the more need for, you know, for example, that, that garden at Lakeside. Um, it's not just a nice thing. It for us, it feels like a must to provide those those kinds of things. Good Shepherd is known as the city's main homeless shelter, but their real pride and purpose is providing rehousing support and permanent supportive housing for those in the most desperate need. There are 98 units of PSH in Wilmington, and that number would need to double to accommodate all the needs in the area. That will take a long time. But Good Shepherd may be able to bring 32 new units online in the coming years if Wilmington City Council votes to hand over an acre to the nonprofit at its September 6th council meeting. WHQR's new community fellow, Grace Vitalione, joins me in the studio now to talk about what that might look like. Welcome to WHQR and welcome to your inaugural appearance on the newsroom. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the parcel that City Council may give to Good Shepherd Center. Okay, so the land itself is about an acre, and it's along Carolina Beach Road. It's the former site of Wilmington Fire Station 6. This kind of conveyance has happened before with Link. That nonprofit received another defunct fire station along Princess Place Drive. Cool. So what's the plan for this property that may go to Good Shepherd Center? on Carolina Beach Road. So it's going to be another set of permanent supportive housing units. Um, This time it'll be about 32 units of affordable housing. It'll be more vertical than Lakeside because it's, you know, a smaller piece of land. But that's in line with, you know, the development that's already there on Carolina Beach Road. And that was something they definitely were very concerned with around Greenfield Lake. They wanted it to kind of match the vibe of the lakeside community. So they kept it a little bit shorter. And um, they also had more room. They had four acres there. Um, do we know what this new development will look like? There's no definitive plans yet. Um, they don't want to count their chickens before they hatch. But after the council vote on September 6th, 
then Good Shepherd can start looking at drawing up plans and seeking funding support. But it will definitely include green space and sidewalks that are wheelchair accessible. But there's another element to their plan that we should also talk about. Oh, really? What's that? Okay, so Good Shepherd won't just seek funding for this shelter. They want to expand their existing campus on the south side as well. They hope to build an expanded shelter for homeless families, as well as an additional 24 units of permanent supportive housing. And that'll be on an acre across the street from their existing spot on 8th and Martin. That is ambitious. I know the Lakeside Reserve cost about $6 million when they built it five years ago, but I also know that costs have gone up and that building vertically is more expensive. That's true. (laughs) They hope to raise even more money this time. Knight told us it would cost tens of millions of dollars, but she feels a lot more confident now that they've done it once already. There's there's always this tricky element where uh, a lot of times no one wants to be the the first pot of money. They they don't want to be the first shot in the arm. Uh, so you have to figure well who who's willing to go first uh, and and pledge a considerable commitment to then leverage other commitments. If if nobody wants to be that first shot in the arm, you're you're stuck. A little bit. I have to wonder whether the new Hanover Community Endowment will pick this as one of their big projects. They're going to start taking applications in September for their first grants. Okay, can you remind me what is this endowment again? Yeah, so it's the endowment the county has from funds from the hospital sale. Basically, they sold the county hospital for $1.25 billion in 2020, and all of that money is now rolled up in an independent nonprofit. They've invested it, and they expect it to eventually generate 45 to $50 million a year for community projects. But this is the first year, and it's conservatively estimating that they'll be able to give 8 to $10 million away. They're planning to announce the criteria for those grants next week. Wow, that is a lot of money. And a lot of people want it. Leadership at the endowment have said they'd like to focus on the housing crisis eventually, maybe sooner rather than later. We're not really sure. So we'll see where it goes. Okay, cool. Well, thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Grace. And thanks for joining WHQR. That's all the time we have for the newsroom. Uh, Do you want to read the credits with me? Why not? Thank you to Heather Wilson for sharing her story, to Karen Garcia, Hilary Falk Vaughn, and Michelle Bennett for joining the panel, and to Liz Carbone and Katrina Knight from Good Shepherd Center. Thanks also to Grace Vitalione for her reporting help and to Ben Schachman for going car shopping with me. Our technical team here at WHQR is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed part of the program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can also now find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm Grace Vitalione. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Bam! That was fun.